Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. How do you respond to stressful, difficult, and challenging life experiences? What do you do when you encounter setbacks? What skills can you put into action to nourish resilience? Resilience is usually understood as a process and the outcome of successfully adapting to challenging life experiences. These days, we are exposed to all types of external stressors. That's the norm and not the exception. We may struggle learning how to deal with a world that moves fast, a world that pressures us in many directions, and a world in which hundreds of things are outside of our control. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Dennis Relojo Howell and he kindly shares with us the ways in which he became resilient and different ways to nourish it. Dennis is a social entrepreneur, speaker, and resilience researcher. He is originally born in Philippines, and in 2014, he founded PsychRec. PsychRec is an award-winning media project dedicated to keeping everyone informed about psychology, mental health, and wellness. In this conversation, Dennis shared how he learned to pursue what matters in the midst of all social stressors, how he uses creative writing as a resilience practice, how he managed the stress of growing up in a stressful environment. I hope you find this episode helpful and feel free to reach out at www.thisisdrz.com. I would love to hear from you. I wish you a great week. Bye-bye. I, I, I don't know if this is the kind of answer that you and your listeners are expecting, but I fear about the death of my loved ones Mm -hmm. and the way I reconcile with that fear is that I try to acknowledge people's mortality and my own mortality Mm -hmm. and by acknowledging everyone's mortality I begin to be more appreciative of the time left with my loved ones so um, that's my greatest fear. If I can ask a little bit more about it, do you remember how this fear started? 
I suppose when um, I, I lost my uncle when I was 15 and I've seen that how my niece and how, how, how my cousin, you know, like grew up without a dad because um, um, we, we lost our uncle when he was um, just 30. So it's such a very young age to, you know, to lose um, a father for, for, for my cousin. So I I was just thinking like, how about me when when it's my turn like um you know without sounding morbid um how how am I gonna feel how am I gonna you know survive when um the time comes that of, of course it will come um the time comes that I will lose my parents um fortunately I still have my parents now I I, my, my, I still have my parents up to this point um but I, I know eventually it, it, it will come because you know like parents are mortal we we would all lose her parents um but uh i i think yeah yeah that that fit um like what i've said um i i begin to you know i, I begin to come to grips with it i suppose mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know i think that in this life we travel with so many fears fears about people that we love pass away fear of not being good enough of being a failure and sometimes we naturally manage these fears skillfully but most of the times we don't most of the times we spend hours and hours ruminating in our head or we start anticipating doom and gloom scenarios how was for you how did you reach a place in which you resolve that fear in a way that helps you to keep doing the things that are important to you mm-hmm. i think that a uh, best way to answer that would be to introduce to you another fear. Mm-hmm. I also I fear it. about not fulfilling other people's expectation. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm a content creator, so if you will, it's sort of a public facing role. So when I launch my channel, my YouTube channel, where I actually interview Doctor Z, um, I was. I was about, I, I was so hesitant. I was so fearful of how people would, you know, react. Um, until now, I still get lots of comments that I don't um, usually, you, you know, the comments that don't usually make me feel good about what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And how did I get through it? How did I navigate it? Um, you just realize that actually this is part of what you're doing, you know, of um, being create, being a content creator comes with a lot of criticism. So you just have to accept that it's part of the process. So I'm telling myself that, you know, if, if I don't want to receive any criticism, then perhaps I should not have chosen this path. I should not have decided to be a content creator. Uh, and that, that, that also applies to other aspects of, you know, what I'm doing. So for instance, I'm currently a PhD student. So um, that comes with a lot of stress. And I also fear that my work as, as a PhD student also gets criticized a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's part of the process. Um, so yeah, just to, to answer your question, I just have to accept the fact that whatever you know whatever criticisms that I receive on whatever things I chose to do it's it's part of the process I I just have to acknowledge that that's very thoughtful of you 
and it's hard when someone is telling us, mm -hmm. oh, you know, this is not good. You could have done this. It's hard not to take it personal, especially mm -hmm. when you are a content creator. I think our internal experiences can be much more manageable when we radically accept what we're feeling, what we are sensing, and what our mind is coming up with. Even when I am saying that, I think it's very hard to do so. And sometimes we coach ourselves in the moment when we are perceiving some criticism. But how do you manage to not wrestle with those thoughts and to not take them personal? That is a reflection of who you are in the world. Yes. Um, the, the, another thing that I find effective is I try to detach myself from the, the things that I do. So <laughs> usually weekends is just me time. So mm -hmm. I try not to engage on anything related to my PhD or related to my content creation. Mm -hmm. I just tell myself without sounding cheesy is that there's life beyond content creation and there's life beyond PhD. So um, it's not all about those things. You know, I, I have my husband, so um, I spend time doing things that we enjoy together. Um, we love traveling. So, you know, just, just kind of reframe it that it's not all about content creation. It's not all about PhD. And, you know, um, the people criticize you for just a tiny fraction of what they see of what they know about you um they don't know that you also have other aspects of your life um and you know just just like those people who criticize you um you have your family you have other interests and you have other things that you also want to do with your life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so having that separation has been helpful for you and now let me switch gears a little bit when you and I thought about having this conversation, one of the things you say in your email was, let's chat about resilience. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about resilience these days? Okay. I see resilience as more of a, a skill. It's, it's, it's something that we can develop. It's something that we can cultiv cultivate if we are given the right intervention, if we are given the right support system. And that actually goes against with what you would what what you would come across on on resilience literature because a lot of researchers do not really agree whether resilience is a process, is it a genetic trait, or is it an outcome, or is it you know the, does everybody have it? But I'd like to think of resilience as something that we can that we can cultivate. We're not born with resilience, but um, we, we can we can cultivate it. That's how I see resilience. And also another thing that we we, we think of resilience um, when we when we hear it is that resilience is um, resilient people are superhuman, or mm -hmm. that they are they are sort of like unicorn. I, I'd like to um, consider resilient people as something more of um, more of squirrels. They're everywhere. You know, they're not like unicorns that it's it's difficult to find them. Um, we might be encountering different trauma, different adversities. But at one point in our life, we have demonstrated that the ability to bounce back, the ability to be resilient. And that's how I see resilience. 
I absolutely love that frame because like you, I agree that resilience is a skill that can be cultivated, can be nourished. And I think it's also related to a person's capacity to handle stress. How they deal with the stressful events, with the stuff that happens outside of our control. Mm -hmm. If you think of resilience as a skill, what are the ways in which people can cultivate it? So people who are listening to us, given all the stressors that we're living at the global level, what would you encourage them to do or to practice to cultivate resilience as a skill? As, as a PhD student, I'm looking for ways on how we can cultivate resilience. And there are many approaches, there are many interventions that we could boost our levels of resilience. And one thing that I'm particularly interested in is um, how we can develop resilience through self-expression, ah. in particular through, because I'm a content creator, in particular blogging. Can we actually use blogging as a form of self-expression to teach people how to be resilient? Mm-hmm. And it's this, this is actually, this, this kind of intervention predates the internet. Um, so some of your listeners might probably come across of um, James Penny Baker, who actually introduced the notion of expressive writing. Um, just to give a bit of a background, uh, what James Penny Baker said is that if we give people an opportunity to express themselves through writing, it can provide a range of psychological benefits. And I want to, I want to tap into that finding. And I'm thinking that with the internet age, perhaps we could put a bit of modern twist with the expressive writing introduced by James Pennebaker. And so I'm looking at, you know, could we also use blogging as a way to cultivate resilience? And of course, it's not just um, through self, um, self-expression that we can cultivate resilience. A lot of research has also demonstrated that if we have a good support system, that could also increase our levels of resilience. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm so fortunate because growing up, I was surrounded with a lot of people who has been support, supportive of what I want to do with my life, um, especially my parents and, and my teachers. And so if you, you know, if, if, if you could find those instrumental people um, that could lead you on how to be more resilient, I think that would be, that would be very beneficial. Um, you, can, you can add them to your resilience portfolio, shall we say. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of that resilience portfolio. I love it. <laughs> Let me go back a little bit. Um, if people want to try some creative writing to cultivate resilience as a skill, mm-hmm. What will you encourage them to do? Is there any process you encourage them to follow through? Yeah, yes. So forget about the grammar, for, forget about the spelling, just pour out your thoughts on a piece of paper. I still have my journal because I'm, I'm introverted. I just love, um, growing up, I prefer my own company and I still have my journal as a nine-year-old. I'm 40 now, so you can imagine the my collection of journals. I still have them to this day. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't have to be just writing, you know. Um, you can just you can just draw or you can just 
um, paint and those are forms of self-expression and there's something about those you know snapshot of your of your emotions snapshots of your feelings at a given time when you look back to them you know like um I'm 40 now and then when I look up my writing when I was 18 I was just like did I really write that? And I was trying to remember, I'm trying to reimagine how was how I was feeling during that time. Because obviously mm-hmm. when you were 18, mm-hmm. um, you see the world in a different way. But when you're 40, perhaps it comes with age. Um, you're a bit more, you're a bit more mature, you're a bit more wise. Um, yeah, so you you have to you have to decide um who is it for and what, what's the purpose of your um self-expression. That's very helpful to hear how you have been writing for quite a while. And it's true. I think our lenses to understand ourselves and our history and what's happening changes. Changes as we keep moving in life. During the pandemic, I remember I grabbed Julia Cameron's journal and she has some prompts for writing. And there were different prompts, like think about one of your sweetest memories when you were a teenager or different things. Will you encourage people to use a prompt or will you encourage them to do free writing? Personally, I would um, just do free writing. Um, I'm, I'm launching a global resilience plug. So I'm, I'm trialing okay. it first with young people in Southeast Asian country. And for my research project, I actually have prompts and and the reason for that is my participants I would imagine that they haven't tried writing they haven't tried blogging so it's it's good to have you know structure so for for my prompt I'm using actually what they think about um, their mental health during the pandemic because it's something that would trigger a lot of you know a lot of um, insights a lot of um, memories and also I was um, I would also prompt them about what they think about resilience and what they think about self-expression. The name of the um, project is called Psychridge Resilience Project. And mm-hmm. just to give a bit of background, Psychridge, because it's the name of my blog. That's right. So, so I decided to do a PhD and the main output of my PhD is to launch a resilience um, intervention, which is backed by modern psychology. So um, I'll be trialing out my resilience intervention with different groups of young people in, in three Southeast Asian countries, in Philippines, in Malaysia, and then in Thailand. And ultimately, my, you know, my, the, the, the trial would inform how the, the blog intervention should look like in the future. Um, and I, I, I aim to, you know, to make this resilience intervention be accessible to a wider group of population, not just with um, young people in Southeast Asian country. Mm-hmm. Um, so for without boring you to the details, um, that, so the first part was I was talking with young people in Philippines, what they think about resilience. Mm-hmm. And I also talked to them what they think about blogging as an intervention. And it's quite a mixed result. Um, pre- predominantly, they think about resilience as something embedded within the culture. Mm. And when it comes to blogging, they're a bit um, 
they're a bit hesitant whether to use blogging or whether it would encourage them to use a resilience intervention if it's blog-based. So uh, I'm trying to explore what they think about it. And um, I, I don't know if my Malaysian participants would also think the same, just like my Filipino participants. But um, yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting result. And I will provide the link to everyone listening to us. Is that okay if I ask a little bit more? Sure, absolutely. You mentioned something that really caught my attention. You mentioned that when you were interviewing young people in the Philippines about resilience, you hear that some of them believe that it's embedded in the culture. Mm -hmm. This may sound obvious to you, so my apologies for that question, Mm -hmm. but what do they mean by that? What were they referring to? Okay, because if if you live in the Philippines, there's this stereotypical notion that you have to be resilient. Otherwise, you won't survive in the Philippines. Just to contextualize it. So in Philippines, we have about 16 typhoons in a year. And these are not just, you know, like typhoons. um, I remember because I grew up in a slum in the Philippines and... Every every monsoon season, every June, June, July, August, there would a house in the slum would get flooded by about eight feet. So every every year, a house in the slum would be submerged eight feet. And my experience is not unique. Um, a lot of young people experience that. Mm-hmm. And not only that, you would also experience earthquake because we are in the Pacific Ring of Fire. When I was in the Philippines, I probably the first earthquake that I experienced was when I was when I was six years old. And that earthquake killed about, if I remember it, like about 5000 people. And the earthquake lasted for just a few seconds. Mm-hmm. So at a young age, I realized that this is a tough environment to leave, yeah. like, literally. And um, because I spent my because I spent my childhood in a slum in the Philippines, I've been exposed to a lot of violence um, without being too graphic. And my experience is not unique. So when I was talking to young people as part of my research project, they also have their own personal accounts of, you know, experiences that requires resilience, that requires you to be emotionally tough. And so that's where the expression that, you know, um, resilience is embedded within the culture Mm -hmm. Um, because there are two things, you know, when when it comes to um, catastrophic events, there are two Fs that that compels you to be resilient in the Philippines. First is um, frequency and second is um, fatalism because Philippines is a very Catholic country. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I'm, I'm not religious myself, but I was um, like every Filipino, I was brought up a Catholic and they, they're very religious. And I suppose religion has a function because mm-hmm. you just attribute it to someone higher than you. You just say mm-hmm. that um, perhaps there's a reason for this volcanic eruption. Perhaps there's a reason for this earthquake. There's a reason for for this typhoon um, is it's God's will. And mm-hmm. without, you know, without without attributing it to a higher being, Mm -hmm. um, you you, you become diminished as a person. You you get lost with with all you're experiencing. And so, you know, whether it's religion or whether it's something else, it's just part of the, you know, the the Filipino culture. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. 
It's a very different mindset. If I can ask a little bit more, in the 90s, there were some papers, some research papers looking at the impact of religious beliefs on how people manage depressive symptoms, how people manage anxiety-based struggles. And I can see why for some people, when there is awful natural conditions like earthquakes and people dying or there is violence around you, when you think about faith and you think that perhaps there is a meaning to that in some way may reduce the distress that you're experiencing through. But what happens for those people that they don't have that religious belief? In your case, how did you handle distress? You say, I'm not a religious person. So given that you grew up with that and that was the environment that you were exposed to, mm. how did you become resilient without the support of faith? Yeah, we, without faith, there's other um, outlets that I could tap into. Um, those mm-hmm. were my parents and those mm-hmm. were my teachers. And I suppose you also draw inspiration from people who have who have experienced far more serious adversity than you. Um, When I was a child, I draw inspiration from people who survived the Holocaust. You know, like I haven't experienced Holocaust myself, but I was just thinking like, if I've been into that situation, how do I actually move on? How do I navigate life? Mm -hmm. And I was telling myself that if people could actually you know, surmount that experience, um, I I should be able to surmount typhoon. I should be able to surmount growing up um, in a tough neighborhood. And and also I'm thinking that my situation is actually slightly better than what other people have experienced. Mm. You know, like imagine, I I remember there was this guy in in the Philippines, um, your... Your listeners might want to Google him. Um, his name is, I forgot his first name, but his, his surname is Visconde. So V-I-Z-C-O-N-D-E, Visconde. Um, just Google it, Visconde Massacre. So basically, this is about a guy working overseas. And then one day he received a news that all of his family members were massacred. Yeah, his mm-hmm. wife and his daughters were killed. But in spite of that, he has demonstrated resilience. He has demonstrated the courage to carry on living. It was only a few years ago that he died. But I was just like thinking that if that happened to me, would I still have the reason to, to leave? You, you remember um, earlier this conversation, I told you that one of my greatest fear is facing the death of a loved one. Mm-hmm. Imagine that, you know, like you, you're working for your family and just one day, all of them were dead, dead mm-hmm. you know, like v- violent death. I don't know if I could survive that, but um, Mr. Visconti has demonstrated what I would call resilience. So I don't have religious faith. I, I have spiritual faith. I don't have religious faith. And so in lieu of religious faith, I'm drawing inspiration from people who have done better than me. And I think Visconde, uh, Mr. Visconde, but th- those kind of people have become source of inspiration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's fascinating you're sharing that. So in some way, looking at how others handle awful events in their life gave you the inspiration to say that you can do this. It gives you some perspective and gives you the courage to find reasons to keep going. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. I personally hold the belief that the humans were wired to thrive and we are fighters and we are survivors. And I also think that that's hard at times. For example, for me as an immigrant, as a woman, as a person that has an accent, there were times in which I felt like giving up. And I feel super grateful like you that I met some people that never gave up on me. They saw some value to what I was doing. And when I was close to give up, they didn't let me do so. Not hundreds of people, but few of them key people. So mm-hmm. how was for you? Did you ever have some moments in which you doubt yourself? In which even though you knew that if others did it, I can do it, still it was hard to do so. Did you experience moments like that? Yes, I do experience um, those things, but just slightly off tangent about your accent, because I also have an accent. I always (laughs) always tell people the reason why I have accent is because I can speak more than one language. um yeah um English yeah uh, when when people ask me like you have an accent yes because English is my fourth language (laughs) but anyway I um, love it I love it I will keep that in my mind (laughs) yeah thank you um (laughs) I there there are reasons that I that I feel like giving up and without sounding melodramatic because I spent my childhood in a slum in the Philippines. You know, I grew up without no running water. There was no electricity. Um, I did not even sleep in an actual bed until I was about 16. Mm-hmm. So um, there are a lot of things that I thought I won't be able to achieve. And one of them is going to university. Mm-hmm. I thought that going to university is not something from of people of my background, you know, because my parents, I, I'm the first in the family of first in the generation to go to university so going to university was just like you know like my, my generation's dreams you know like um it, it might not have been a big deal for for people but when I went when I went to university I was like I'm doing this for for my parents because they did not have the opportunity to go to university it took me a long time to finish university you know like um for um Usually in Philippines, you should be able to finish your degree in four years, but it took me six years to finish university. So I was just like, can, can I really do this? Because I'm, I'm a very average student. So that was w- one of the moments in my life that I was like, is this really for me? Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just like, you know what, like going to university is far, far easy if I'm going to compare what my parents were doing when they were on the, you know, when, when they were 18, because um, when, when, when my parents were 18, they were fruit pickers, they were picking fruits. Uh, and I was telling myself, I'm 18 and I'm going to university. I have a far, far more, you know, comfortable life compared to my parents. So I should be able to do that. So mm-hmm. that kept me going. Another is that I felt like giving up when I first moved in, in, in here in the UK, because mm-hmm. um, just like you, I'm an immigrant. And if, if you're an immigrant, um, you know, like I, I first came into this country with just, just like most immigrants. I first came into this country with just two luggage <laughs> and hundred pounds. 
So the feeling. Yeah, literally, you have to start from scratch. Yeah, because um, mm-hmm. way back then, I was an international student. I don't know anyone. I don't speak the lang- um, language very well. And it's, it's a completely different system. And a year after I finished my degree, I couldn't find a job, you know, because when you finish your degree, you're kind of disillusioned. I've got a master's degree because I came here as a master's student. I've got a master's degree. I should be able to just, you know, get a job. I couldn't find a job. I, I tried, you know, things which academically I'm overqualified, but I'm willing to do that. And, but for the first four years of my life, I was just so devastated when I was here. Like I couldn't find a job that matches my academic training. And, mm-hmm. But eventually I found, you know, I, I found um, a way of um, earning um, using my academic training. And so that, that kind of regained my confidence again. How did you find that? How did you find the new way of keep going? How did I, I suppose I owe it to my husband. So mm-hmm. Graham, if you're listening, I'm giving you credit. <laughs> um, I owe it to my husband because it's, it's been very supportive. I remember when um, for our first year of marriage, I told him, because my first year of marriage, I still couldn't find a job. I told him that I couldn't find a job. Should we just move to Philippines? Because mm-hmm. I said like, if before I came into this country, I was a university lecturer. I told him that mm-hmm. if I just go back to Philippines with my master's degree, I could just walk to a university and get a job. Um, but it's not the same here. I was just like, no, just, just stick to it. And my husband has been one of my, you know, um, motivational, motivational voice. He's one of my biggest cheerleaders. And so mm-hmm. I, I benefited from his motivation. It's beautiful that you have that support that you were able to find that inspiration with him and through him. And I'm sure that when he listens this interview, he's going to have a smile on his face. <laughs> they're giving him credit. <laughs> I love it. Um, another thought or other types of thoughts that sometimes come into our mind when you're creating, when you are trying to keep moving in life is comparison thoughts. We compare ourselves with others. What would you do when your mind compares what you are doing, your performance, your accomplishments with others' accomplishments or others' achievements? Okay. Well, when you compare yourself, you have to contextualize it. You know, like you you have to think about upward comparison and you have to think about downward comparison. Mm. So you have to think, am I really successful YouTuber compared me to, let's say, Joe Rogan? (laughs) I'm nothing you know like um, my number of subscribers is not even one percent of Joe Rogan's number of subscribers well Joe Rogan is a different beast (laughs) I think uh, sorry Joe Rogan but he lives in a different universe right I don't know what he does that much now that's the thing about comparison you have to compare yourself to something that is really you know like the same background the same effort the, the same starting point shall we say okay. um so you you have to be um how, how do i say it you have to be you have to respect your um your effort what you what you're doing so instead of comparing yourself to someone like you know, like Joe Rogan, I'm not going to compare myself with Joe Rogan. So if I'm going to 
compare myself with Joe Rogan, I feel such a failure because mm. I would be like, I'm putting a lot of efforts with my content creation, but why am I not like Joe Rogan? But I have to acknowledge that I don't have the same resources as Joe Rogan, like his um, technical abilities, or probably he's got um, a staff, he's, he's got team. I don't have that resources. So when you compare yourself, avoid doing upward comparison. Mm -hmm. And also, it's not also good that you're comparing yourself with downward comparison. You know, you're, you're comparing yourself to someone who hasn't got a YouTube channel. Um, just, just be realistic, you know, with, with, um, with, with comparison. We hear it a lot of time when people say that, um, try to avoid comparison, but it's really difficult to, to do that because yeah. we live in an era where it's so accessible to, you know, it's, it's so accessible to, to compare yourself with other people. And I also tell myself that, I'm not good at certain things and I'm not good at certain things. And it, that's just part of who I am. Um, you, ha you have to acknowledge your limitations. Um, uh, one thing that um, really frustrates me the most is I had never learned how to drive. You know, mm -hmm. like I'm the only one in the family who hasn't learned how to drive. I put a lot of effort into it. I had seven driving instructors, believe it or not, but um, I, I never think. learned how to drive. And you know, I, I'm not going to compare myself with my with my niece, you know, like who who can drive when, when she was on her 20s, because that will just make me feel bad. I just have to acknowledge that even though I don't know how to drive, that did not really limit me in going to places where I want to go. I love how you came into a place of accepting who you are. Like you, I agree that our mind will naturally compare. We'll compare ourselves with others, with relatives, with other content creators. I think evolutionarily speaking, those comparison thoughts kept us alive. It just mm -hmm. happens that they're not very effective all the time. And here is my last question. Dennis, if you were to have a cup of tea or coffee or a beer, or a scotch with any person you want today, who will that be and why? Oh, um, I probably would love to have a cup of tea with um, Dr. Jordan Peterson. Um, I'm mm -hmm. a big fan of Dr. Jordan Peterson. Um, I've actually read his book, Rules for Life. And I would love to talk more about his book and talk more about his insights. I'll probably have more than one cup of tea. <laughs> I bet, I bet. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.zone. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable playing it safe actions. See you soon!